Let's pray together. God, we thank you for new life. We thank you for, again, Lord, that you lift us up. You didn't bring anybody here today to just smash us down, but you are building something today. We want to build with you. So I pray for everybody who feels crushed. I pray that they would feel some restoration today when they leave. We come to your word and we believe it is the living and active word of God. History and trivia and research from men is pointless and useless. So speak to us the words of life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So glad that you're here today. So glad that you're here today. Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15. Verse 4. It says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Again, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. You know, there are some things that Jesus says in the Gospels that make me feel warm and fuzzy like I'm getting a hug. And then there are other things that he says in the Gospel that I'm totally terrified about. Like some of his prophecies, like for example, one in Matthew chapter 12, he says, Jesus says that we will give an account for every careless word that we say. Uh Uh-oh. Because I say a lot of careless words. A lot of careless words. I cannot express to you how many careless words I am saying. So the idea of being held accountable to them is terrifying because I've had a few times in my life where my careless words have come back to haunt me. Anybody else? I was feeling a little alone this morning. Anybody else's careless words come back to haunt Like two stories I'm thinking of right now and, and both of the conversations went very, very bad and they both started with, I heard that you said. Nothing good comes after that phrase. You know, you don't open up your email and it's, you know, your name, comma, I heard that you said that I'm a wonderful person and I'm so awesome. No, it's I heard that you said and then it's bad news and then you have to either lie, which most of us do, like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's crazy. I don't know where you heard that or, or, or just fess up that, that phrase, I heard that you said, being held accountable for every careless word, I'm, I'm totally scared. What it's going to be like, I'm just, I'm predicting in the future, we're in the kingdom of God one day, we're standing for judgment. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but my idea is that you guys are all going to be in one line being held, uh, you know, accountable and careless for your words, or and, and then there's going to be me over in a special section, like he had his turn, we needed extra time for him over there. Like I know that's what's waiting on me, and I'm I'm so terrified because we all know, don't we, why Jesus would say that he's going to hold us accountable for every careless word because we know the power of words, don't we? You've been on the giving end of powerful words and you've also been on the receiving end of powerful words. And and what we're going to come around today is the idea that God has made your words very, very powerful Will you use them for people or against people? There's no option for just neutral words. 
We all have powerful words. Will you use them for people or against people? I mean, look at the power here. Verse four, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So your words are gonna carry influence. They have effect. The scripture says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. It also says that rash words are like sword thrusts which if you've been on the receiving end of rash words, you know exactly what the writer of Proverbs is saying. It feels very personal. It feels like a wound for someone to speak against you. It also has words on the other end, like gracious words are uh, like honey. And it, it says this death and life, or excuse me, it says if you control your mouth, you will keep yourself from trouble. Doesn't that just seem like the simplest parent strategy ever. Like I'm going to invest all of my time and energy in teaching my children to control their mouth because if you control your mouth, the Bible says it will keep you from trouble. Our words are powerful like a tree of life. I want to show you the two places in the scripture, primary places where the tree of life is referenced. So turn to both ends of the scripture, to the front in Genesis chapter 2 and to the back in Revelation chapter 22. Genesis chapter 2 in the front. Revelation 22 in the back. And we're going to use these two references to show us what it means for our words to be a tree of life. Chapter 2, Genesis verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in the garden of Eden, God put two trees, the tree of life, which is what we're talking about today, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree that Adam and Eve ate from. Now, Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, this is a a vision that one of the apostles, John, is, is getting of the kingdom to come, of heaven and a new earth. And this is what it says in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Now in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, you're familiar with this as the story of creation. God brings life out of nothing. Out of nothing came everything. He's creating the world. But it's also the story of relationship. God is not forced to create humanity. He can do whatever he wants in the Garden of Eden. And yet he wants to create man. And so he creates Adam. And then he says to Adam, everything in this garden is good and you are good, but it's not good for you to be alone. And so he creates Eve. So Genesis 1 through 3 is a story of creation, but it's also a story of relationship. And we learn from the very beginning of the scripture that God has made relationships good and good for us. Now, depending on how your week is going, how your marriage is going, how your relationship with your kids are going, you either go amen or I'm not so sure about that. Relationships are good and they are good for you. And our words will be the determining factor in the fulfillment of that good in our relationships. It's our words that usually dictate, that steer the relational ship, according to James 
Our words will be the determining factor of the fulfillment of that good that God has placed on relationships. See, words, when used properly, are, are like a tree of life. They, they give something. They give life. They create something in someone else. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 in the New Testament, it expresses it uh, the same idea in a little bit different way. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it, it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. See, God is always at work. Philippians chapter 1 tells us this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God is always at work. He's always at work in you, and he's also always at work in those around you. You may not see it. It may be invisible to you, but God is at work in their lives, and he has anointed your words to be a part of his work in that person. He has set aside your words, sanctified your words, as he builds up his plan and brings his plan for that person to fruition. When you think about the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, the, the Israelites were being oppressed by the Midianites. Turn to the person on your right and say, Midianites. I just want you to join me in saying hard Bible words. Also to make sure that you actually have words or else this message will be totally irrelevant to you. Israel is being oppressed by the Midianites and... Uh, what the Midianites would do, among many other things, is when it was time for harvest, the Israelites would go out to the fields, but the Midianites would rush in and take their harvest from them. And so when we meet Gideon, we find him threshing wheat, which is normally something that you would do out in the open, but he's threshing wheat hidden away in a wine press so that the Midianites don't find out and come and take that harvest. And so an angel of the Lord appears to, to him as he's threshing this wheat hidden away and says to Gideon, O mighty man of valor. Now, wouldn't that be cool, men, especially for an angel to show up with a message from God and just be like, like, you're a stud. Like, you are awesome. Like, just, you're a hero. I mean, that would be so great. And some of us would go like, I knew it. And, and that's sinful and prideful. But most of us would be like, are you talking to me? Like, surely you're not talking to me. And that's what Gideon does. He, he looks around and says, surely you're not referring to me as a mighty man of valor. And then he goes through his resume, but it's like a flipped upside down resume because where you and I try to boast in our resumes, he was just being real honest. And he says, listen, out of all the tribes in Israel, I'm in the least tribe. Out of all the clans in my tribe, I'm in the least clan. And out of all the families in my clan, my family is the least. And of all my family members, I am the least significant, so your description and encouragement of almighty oh, man of valor doesn't really fit. And I'm guessing that if we knew Gideon, we would go, why are you calling him a mighty man of valor? I'm guessing Gideon is not just being humble. God is always at work. And he's at work in some people in your life right now that you go, no, he's not. God could never use that person. God will never use that person, or I secretly hope God does not use that person. <laughs> he is working, and he's using your words to build up his work in the people around you. Listen, it's not just new work he's using our words for. It's to encourage the existing work that he's already doing in people. Like Timothy in the New Testament. Timothy has an impressive 
spiritual list of qualifications. The Apostle Paul doesn't have biological children, but he says about Timothy, that's my son right there. That's my son, my true son in the faith. The Apostle Paul believed in Timothy so much that when he couldn't get somewhere, he just sent Timothy instead. I mean, this guy, Timothy, is unbelievable and qualified and gifted to lead churches in the New Testament, and yet he had a tremendous struggle with fear. I know none of us can relate with that. But in fact, he struggled with fear so much that the Apostle Paul writes a letter to Corinth, uh, the church in Corinth, and he says, I'm sending to you Timothy, but here's what I need you to do. I need you to put him at ease when he gets there. Another translation says, show him that he doesn't have any reason to be afraid. Can you imagine your parents sending a letter when you went off to college to like your dorm people and saying, I love them so much, put them at ease when they get there, show them that they don't have anything to be scared of. How humiliated would you be? So Timothy, this mighty saint, but he has a real problem with fear. So when you take that knowledge and you lay it back on the two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, you see it popping off the page. Right from the beginning in 2 Timothy chapter one, he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy. He says, be courageous and don't be ashamed and be bold. These powerful words to encourage Timothy, who was amazing, who was qualified, who was gifted, who God was using. But he uses Paul's words to fan that flame because God had something special for Timothy. A couple obstacles for us, though, because, I mean, who wouldn't agree with that? Who wouldn't be like, yeah, that's amazing that my words, my little words can be a part of bringing somebody's God-given destiny to fruition. We would all sign up for that until we start applying that to some specific people. A couple obstacles. Obstacle number one. I'm afraid if I encouraged them, they would get prideful and that's a sin. Listen, I, I like to win. Anybody else just like to win? Just raise your hand. And the rest of you have false humility. Uh, I love to win. Winning is my favorite. It's the best. Winning is better than losing. I, I don't care what people say. And winning is better than tying. And I like to win. I don't care if I lose. I just never want to experience what that's like. I'm like that. Like, I'm not like a get mad when I lose kind of person. I'm just a try to achieve, 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 conquer, conquer, conquer until I'm great at everything. So this is a terrible burden for my wife to live with. So pray for us. Pray for her, really. Pray for me to be changed and her to be patient. So I like to win. Uh, like, I like to play basketball back in the day, long, long time ago. Uh, and I grew up in Missouri. And so the schools were a little bit smaller than they here in Houston. And so I played all the way through and experienced some measure of success. Obviously not in the NBA. God had something else for me. It was a hard choice. But... Um, <laughs> But I achieved some standard of success there. But Amanda went to one of these super 5A Houston high schools. You know what I'm talking about? So there's been a couple of occasions in our marriage in these last 12 years where she has hinted at the possibility that maybe I would not have been able to make the team at her high school. (laughs) But there's nothing I can do to prove that now. It's not like I can go to her high school now and be like, what's up, boys? Let's do this. You know, I mean, I would get arrested. I think, for that. <laughs> but if I could travel back in time to, to move to Houston, I would just to show her that I got game and she should respect me. You know, like, I like to win. So a couple of months ago, this is our marriage and this is what it's like to live with me. 
couple months ago, after church, we went to eat at a Chinese restaurant, and dinner's over, and so they bring the fortune cookies, and so I crack mine open, and I crack it open, and it says, be a winner. And I'm like, amen. Like, God is speaking. <laughs> God is speaking through this fortune cookie right now. I don't think he does that all the time, but right here, obviously, he has anointed this for <laughs> such a time and place. And so I get up to pay the bill, or I don't remember why I got up. I, I come back to my seat, and suddenly there has appeared a second line on my fortune cookie. Can we see it? I don't know where it came from. I'm not pointing any fingers. It was hilarious. This is hilarious. I was so I am so fortunate. She was just teasing uh, to live with my wife uh, before. Uh, by the next time I'm with you uh, will be our anniversary, June fifteenth. We'll be I've been married twelve years, and so I'm so fortunate to be married to this amazing woman. And I'm really hard to live with. Like I really am. Because we know people like this. You know somebody in your life right now that if you're like, I could write them a note of honesty right now. And that's not what she was doing. She was kidding. But, (laughs) right? Probably, probably, I think. (laughs) See, what I've learned is we either have people in our lives like this that we really want to be humble. Or if we don't, it's because everyone else wants us to be humble. You know, we just know people. And putting... The jokes aside, there are a lot of people in our lives that we want them to stay in their place, don't we? A lot of people that you work with that you want to stay in their place. And we will use our words to make sure that they do. Either by giving them some discouragement, anytime that they start being lifted up or good things start happening to them, we will come with something that just takes all the wind out of their sails or more likely what most of us are doing because that takes a tremendous amount of courage to just be honest and say, I I don't like this person, so I'm gonna intentionally be discouraging. What most of us will do is we will just withhold encouraging words as a way to ensure that they are in their place. But you can't manipulate that in someone else. You cannot manipulate someone else's humility. You can't put somebody in their place. And that's a good thing because it's not your job and it's not my job. That's God's job. And he has promised to take care of it. He says in his word that he opposes the proud. And you're like, and I'm like, well, let me help you. I will oppose with you. But he will oppose the proud And he gives grace to the humble. So the real challenge for me, because there are a lot of people I would like to stay in their place. The challenge for me is to start worrying about other people's humility less and start worrying about my own a lot more. According to the fortune cookie, I need it. (laughs) The second obstacle, I don't want to encourage them because they haven't met my standard yet. This Part of us says, well, I would give encouraging words to them if they did something worth encouraging. And I'm not speaking for you, so you take this and throw it away if it doesn't apply. I'm just speaking for me right now. I have too many standards, and all of my standards are too high. Yesterday, we were at the pool, and Jackson and Annabeth were throwing this big rubber ball to each other and like trying to jump and then catch it in midair. You've played this game before. 
So I'm sitting outside because the water's still kind of chilly, and um, Jackson isn't like throwing it like 100% the way that I think it should be thrown. So I'm like coaching him up, you know, I'm like, don't do this, do this, you know, don't do this. Why are you doing that? And then like I had to stop myself and like, what's the matter with you? Like, what's the matter with you as a father? Your job is to train this young life to be a man who loves Jesus with all his guts and to be a good man and a winsome man. That's your job. At what point on this planet is it going to be relevant that he is able to throw a giant rubber ball to someone jumping into a pool? Like, why do I have a standard for that? Where did that come from? Why would I care if he was good at that or not good at that or getting better at that? That has zero relevance to life in general. It's not like when they're, you know, 31 and 35, he'll be like, hey, sis, why don't you jump in the pool? I'm really good at this now you know. No. Listen, there is legitimate disappointment in this life. There is legitimate disappointment and people have let you down and it's painful and it is totally real. But if everyone is always letting you down, that is a you problem and not a them problem. If everyone all the time is disappointing you, It may be because that you are demanding perfection from imperfect people. And when we start doing that, when we start demanding perfection from imperfect people, it's a straight shot to cynicism. Some of us are just cynical. We just assume people are going to let us down. And it's not because... It's not because one time somebody did something that was genuine and really, really disappointing and hurtful. It's because we have had standards that are way too high and we've applied them way too liberally to way too many people. And if we do that, everyone is going to be letting you down. And listen, that's the way the world works. The world works with you achieve, then I'll give you encouragement. You meet the standard, then you get encouragement. But we're not of the world. We live here, but we're not of the world. We're of the kingdom of Jesus. And can you imagine, listen, can you imagine if God waited to encourage us until we met his standard? Can you imagine him saying to us today, I got so much for them. I got so much encouragement. I got so many words to build them up and to, to put wind in their sails and to bring to fruition all that. I got so many words from them. And if they will just do this and this and this and this, then I will give it to them. But he doesn't treat us like that. He builds us up. His words are a tree of life to us, whether we are achieving or not achieving. See, here's the reality of our relationships. Encouragement builds trust and trust leads to influence. Encouragement builds trust and trust leads to influence. So if there is somebody in your life that is not currently meeting your standards, first evaluate whether your standards are realistic and should be applied to that person. But if they should, and they are not meeting your standards, don't withhold encouragement from them. Give encouragement. When you withhold words of courage and kindness, all that does is push that person further away from you, emotionally or physically. So if you are a husband and your wife is not sure that you think that she is a good wife, I promise you she is withholding some part of herself from you. Because if you don't know where you stand with somebody, you cannot entrust yourself completely to them. If you're a parent, 
and your children believe that your acceptance is based on their achieving whatever standard you have put in front of them. Because they're children and you are their parents, they may achieve for you. But as they are achieving more and more, they are trusting you less and less. Because you cannot entrust yourself to someone where you are unsure about where you stand. And so if you want people to change, the way for that to happen is to not withhold from them words of kindness and grace and courage. It's to give it. Because when you give encouragement, they will trust you. They'll know that they're loved, that they're cared for, that they're accepted no matter what. And then there will be no end to the amount of influence that they're willing to give you. The third obstacle, probably the most challenging for all of us in being an encouraging person, our words being a tree of life, is I've heard some things about them. I don't think I can encourage them now. I've heard some things about them. I don't think I can encourage them now. So this is everyone's favorite topic, gossip. Yay. Right? It's our favorite topic. Why? Because we're all guilty. Sometimes gossip is hard to define. Sometimes we try to justify it with like, well, it's true. You know, I'm just like proclaiming the truth in this circle without that person actually being here. So it is kind of hard to nail down, especially when I don't want to admit that I've been gossiping. So the, the internal guide that I have, the question that I have, is any relationship uh, hindered because I'm saying this or hearing this? This is the tool, the barometer, the thermometer about whether or not this is a gossip conversation. Is any relationship being hindered because I'm saying this or because I'm hearing this? Is, is my relationship with the offending person hindered because I'm telling people this? Is the pre- people who are listening to this conversation, is their relationship with the offending person hindered because I'm sharing this? Somebody else is sharing it. Is it affecting my relationship with the offending person? And if it is, it's gossip. And when there's gossip, the relationships are always harmed. Here's how you know that that's true. Have you ever left a circle of gossip, a little conversation that kind of veered off into about that other person? Have you ever left that conversation and we're like, man, I can't wait to hang out with that person. It's so awesome, man. We just talked bad about them, but I just am so drawn to them. I'm gonna call them right now and see when we can get together. No which means that the relationship is being hindered because of that conversation. The reality is, is all of us know gossip is wrong and yet we can't help it. You know why we can't help it? For the same reason we can't resist chocolate. Proverbs chapter 17, verse eight, or Proverbs chapter 18, verse eight, the words of a whisperer are like, a, are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. The reason we are so prone to gossip is because it tastes great. It feels good to say and it feels good to hear. But it damages every relationship. Not just your relationship with the offending person, but your relationship with everyone else in that circle. Because if they'll say that about them, I think internally you know that they might say it about you too. If they turn on them and you turn on them, then everyone else in the circle might know that you, you'll turn on them too. You ever been to an accountability group? Number one rule of an accountability group is don't skip accountability group. 
because you're the topic of the conversation that week? Proverbs chapter 17, verse eight says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. As one pastor I heard recently says, you wanna be the last person on the gossip train. Meaning when that, when that thing gets handed to you, train's over. Ride's over. Wouldn't it be amazing to have the kind of reputation where people have something juicy to share and they see your name in their phone and like, well, I can't call that person because <laughs> once I talk to them, I know I can't share it anymore and they're not gonna, they're not gonna indulge it. Wouldn't that be an amazing reputation to have? Wouldn't it be amazing to be the one friend that your friends can count on? See, our words are to be a tree of life. They're to be life-giving. They're to create something in somebody. They're to build up what God is doing in their lives. I've told you before that when I was in high school, I went through a little period where I didn't really care to go to church, but my parents were pretty smart and they asked me a real important question. Do you have a job? And I said, no. And they said, well, you have no money, so you're gonna go to church with us. That's the way this is gonna work. And, and so they... So I tagged along and they would make me go to the student ministry, you know, the youth ministry. And I didn't want to be there. And so I tried to sit in the, the furthest back that I could. It was not a big church, so the rooms were pretty small. But I tried to get back tucked away in the furthest corner. And I'd always wear a baseball cap because I'd pull it way down over my eyes. So everybody got the vibe that I'm too cool to be here and I don't want to be here and don't talk to me. I'm not interested in anything that's going on here. Well, my youth pastor was an amazing man and uh, he didn't let any of that stop him. And so he gave me a job right at kind of in the middle of that season. He gave me a job. He said, I want these, these youth ministry nights to be real fun. And, and I think you should be the person to bring like the game, like the game, the mix around the, the big thing. That's real funny. Like you're in charge of that. And if you don't do it, I'm not doing it. And so this would be super boring. And I want to be like, well, it's kind of boring anyway. But uh, when an adult is telling you what to do, you're like, I'm going to do it. And so I did, I started bringing some game and, you know, sometimes it humiliate somebody, but it was in Jesus' name, so it's cool, I think. And, and in the middle of that, he, he gave me this book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. I was 17 years old, September 28th, 1998. This is what he said. He said, Kurt, now he, he can call me Kurt. Two groups of people in my life can call me Kurt. One is my wife and the other, they all live in Missouri. So uh, Curtis is my name here in Texas. It's my professional name. It says, I so appreciate your leadership. You have a gift of leadership and I look forward to the impact you will continue to have in the future. I hope this book is helpful. Now, what I wanna tell you is this person that he's talking about, it didn't exist. If you would have taken my name off of this, and read it in September of 1998. You would go, well, that book's for somebody else. Surely that's not his book. This is the power of our words. The power of our words to, to be a part of God's holy work in someone else. He's anointed. He's anointed your words to accomplish his purpose in the life of people around you. In Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life is not just a creation thing, it's, its leaves are for the healing of the nation. 
if you've ever been on the receiving end of a, an encouraging word in a timely moment, you know exactly what that's like. When you're raw with pain and hurt and you feel like life has just worked you over and somebody just speaks a very specific word right to you, it's like medicine for your soul. And I love the way that trees, leaves move in all different directions. See, for us, if we are an encouraging person, we usually only send it downward. You know, encouraging most easily, encouragement easily flows downward. Like if you're a teacher, you know that you're always encouraging the children in your class. Encouragement flows downward real nice. And occasionally it will flow forward like peer to peer. You know, somebody of equal standing, but you know that's hard. I mean, men, imagine leaving today and you, you see somebody and you're just like, hey, can I talk to you? That's already weird. And then you're like, you know, hey, I've been watching your life and that's super creepy. And, and like, you know, I've been thinking about what I've been seeing. That's like even creepier. And then you're like, I think that you're an amazing father. And I just wanted to say that out loud. That's a little bit awkward. Even though it's real powerful, it's a little bit awkward. And so that's why we always send our encouragement down because it's less awkward. That's why you encourage your children, but you don't encourage your spouse because it's all a little bit awkward. And then encouragement hardly ever flows up. Discouragement always floats to the top. If you ever wonder what the emails of your manager look like, it's not good. If you ever wonder uh, what the emails of the leader of your team looks like, it's not good. It's not pretty. Discouragement flows upward. Encouragement hardly ever does. You know, I was the coach of Jackson's five-year-old basketball team a few years ago, and, and I'm always encouraging them, like, hey, that was a good shot. It didn't hit the rim, but you're getting closer, you know, and, and good dribbling, even though, you know, you only dribbled once and then it, went out of bounds, but that was better than the last time where it just went out of bounds, you know, and encourage and encourage them, you know, none of those kids came to me and were like, coach, you're the best coach in the whole world, man. I want to be on your team forever. No, because encouragement doesn't go to the top. Discouragement flows to the top, but we're the people of God and encouragement should come out of us in every direction. It's like a tree of life, which leaves are in every direction. Listen, your boss, whoever that is, should hear something from you this week that will build them up. You're like, well, he's always telling me what to do or she's always, you know, on me. Well, you know the fastest way to influence? Encouragement, because encouragement builds trust and trust gets influence. You wanna be the most influential person in your floor, in your office, in your circle of cubicles? Don't withhold encouragement from the people over authority. Give it, give it, give it, give it wherever you see it. And I'm not saying lie, but give it. And they will trust you because I promise there's no one else in that office they can trust. You want to be the most influential teacher in your school? You let your principal know that you are their biggest fan. And let encouragement come from every direction because when encouragement comes, healing comes and you never know what somebody's going through. You don't know who in this room right now has cancer. They know it, but you don't. You don't know who in this room right now just lost a job. You don't know it, but they know it. You don't know who right now is gonna leave and that pit is gonna come back in their stomach because they got a situation at work they're gonna have to deal with. You don't know that, but they know it. And your words can be words of healing in Jesus' name. I love the story of Nehemiah, specifically chapter two through four, because in Nehemiah, God gives him this mission to go back to Jerusalem. They've been exiled. See, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. 
and the Babylonians just ripped apart everything. So there's no wall. People are still living in Jerusalem, but they can't protect themselves. There's no protection. And God gives Nehemiah this mission to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and start with the wall. And so Nehemiah gets back there and he starts kind of organizing everything. And he sees that there are these big holes in the wall. So there'd be a little bit of wall, but then there'd be a big hole and the enemies could come right through him. And so what he did was he started organizing people. He started organizing them by families and he would assign a family to a hole in the wall. And he would give them two responsibilities. One, to protect the hole, protect the breach. The second responsibility, to build it up, to fix the, fix the breach, to fix the hole. I believe the same choice is in front of us today. That God has empowered our words to stand guard over the people that encircle us. To protect them with our words and to build up what needs to be built up. But we get the choice. We can build up the holes or we can create them You can fix the breach or you can create the breach. And God has given that choice to us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O oh Lord. Let's pray. God, empower our words and let them be useful and not worthless and not careless. Why don't you take just a second and just ask the Holy Spirit to just search you and see where, if there's any, any place in you, like in me, where some repentance needs to come, where some change needs to come in our, the way that we speak to people, speak about people. Just let him just bring both conviction potentially and power to change. us and know us and then restore us in Jesus name amen why don't you stand to your feet our prayer ministry team is going to come and take their places as they do every week a couple real specific ways that we're going to pray as we finish today number one if if you are not in the kingdom of God and you want to be in the kingdom of God the invitation has been sent to you already The invitation is available. The doors of God's kingdom are wide open. You just have to go through the door and the door is Jesus. So you just believe in Jesus right here where you stand. He can see that faith and will respond to that faith. You can come forward and let somebody know. That would be a powerful thing. The second way, uh, thing that I want us to pray for is, is maybe you're like the prophet Isaiah. When he gets a glimpse of God, his first instinct is to go, oh my gosh, I live among a people of unclean lips. And, and, and I think many of us, me in line today, are feeling that. Like, oh, just, un, just the uncleanness that's coming out of my mouth at all times. If you want to come and be prayed for, for real change to happen, that's possible. And then the last thing, I think probably most applicable for most of us, is if there's somebody in your life that you see a lot of God-given potential in. 
Maybe they're in your home. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe you work with them, but you just see God's hand on them. They don't see it yet, but you see it. You can come and pray for them by name. It'll be a powerful thing to have that kind of agreement happening today. They'll never know that you prayed for them, but they'll see the effects of your prayer. God, make our prayers effective. And I pray that much change would come out of this next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You come and pray.